Welcome to Bethesda Broadcast, the podcast of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. Today, we continue our lineup of guest speakers as Pastor Roy is out of town. Dan Copeland is the Bible teacher at the local Christian school and a member at Bethesda Church. Today, Dan is giving a message entitled, Should We Tolerate Intolerant People? We encourage you to open up your Bibles and follow along with Dan in this intriguing topic. a boring sermon when the preacher needs his own cup of coffee to keep him going. <clears throat> no. <clears throat> Just a little water to keep me wet here. I'll let you kind of absorb that for a second. I know not everybody can read that. The words are a little small. The big question, should we tolerate intolerant people? And uh, this is a little cartoon actually made by the staff at Answers in Genesis. They like to Facebook a lot. They're at Answers in Genesis. And uh, so they had this exchange. Someone replied to one of their posts on Facebook and said, I'm a very tolerant person. I believe everyone should be more tolerant. The cartoon you posted posted on Facebook was very intolerant. Therefore, I am befriending you. Unfriend, I'm sorry, unfriending you. I am unfriending you. Makes a big difference there. Tolerance. Uh, if, if, who's seen The Princess Bride? Princess Bride? I love the way they, they kind of stole the quote from their tolerant people. They keep using this word. I do not think it means what they think it means. Should we tolerate intolerant people? It's a great question for our time. And uh, I know we prayed, but I'm just going to begin again in prayer because I need a whole lot more of it. Heavenly Father, as uh, we come again to your house to worship you, and Father, you have uh, called us to be your people. You've called us to be a light in this world. You've called us to be different from the culture around us. And Lord, you've called me for this time to, to speak truth into the life of the congregation, so I pray for your help, please. For me, Lord, to speak the truth of your word faithfully for this congregation to live out the reality of your word. I pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to have control of us as a body and us as individuals, God, to lead us, to teach us, to guide us in right actions, that we can be the best ambassadors possible in this fallen world. We thank you, God, for the position that you've put us in. Though we may be, as Christians, despised in this culture, yet we are your children, God, and you've put us here for a reason. So we praise you for it. We thank you, God. May you be glorified in what we say and do here as well as when we leave this place, Lord. And we pray this in the precious name of Christ, our only Savior. Amen. Well, what does tolerance really mean? What does tolerance mean? You know, Christianity was actually the religion that invented tolerance. You know that? If you think about this, back in the ancient world, uh, everyone was expected to worship basically the same God that everyone else did. All right? uh, loyalty to your city or your state was synonymous with worship of the local gods. You see that example in the Bible, but you also find it throughout the ancient world in Rome and uh, in Greece. Uh, Greece. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why early Christians were persecuted. Because they were bringing a foreign God and saying he alone should be worshipped. And people felt that was... Uh, not loyal to the empire. 
So really, while other religions throughout history, even into today, are out there saying that you know, if you're a good whatever, if you're a good Indian, you're going to be a Hindu and you're going to follow the caste system. If you're a good Middle Easterner in several places, you will be a Muslim and you will follow that. While others want to force that, Christianity was the one that came along and said, you know what, we need to have some tolerance. In other words, Christianity basically said to people, um, you know, we may not agree with your beliefs, but we're not going to persecute you or try to force you to believe what we believe. Instead, what we're going to try to do is try to convince you with reason and with scripture that there's a reason for you to believe the way, the way that we believe. So we're going to engage people. We're going to try to disciple people. We're going to change people from the inside out by the power of God, not in our own strength. And that's a radically different concept than all the religions of the world. And so really Christianity invented tolerance. And it's a good thing. But when we say tolerance, I'm pretty sure we all realize that's not what our society means by tolerance. They don't mean, uh, I disagree with you, but I'll love you and try to convince you and I'm not going to force you. What does tolerance really mean in modern society? Um, before we actually answer that question, I want to give you kind of a launching point to remember something that should shape this conversation. And that is Peter's admonition or his commandment to us in 1 Peter. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that lies within you. I'm sure you've all heard that before. And you might wonder what that has to do with tolerance. It connects. Trust me, we'll get to the connection, okay? But I want you to remember that verse in the back of your head as we discuss this issue. So what does tolerance mean in the modern society? If you say tolerance or, or people um, in, in a, any given social environment outside of a Christian circle, they say tolerance. What they're really talking about is this concept or idea that all lifestyles, values, beliefs, beliefs and truth claims are equal. Okay? That's why you have all this uh, stuff. But, you know, well, you can have your religion and I can have my religion and we can just kind of get along and, and nobody gets hurt. Okay? And it's fine. My religion is just as true for me as your religion is for you. All lifestyles, values, beliefs, and truth claims are equal. Well, this morning what I want to do is give you, first of all, three important things to understand about the secular idea of tolerance. And then we're going to talk about a Christian response to those ideas. Okay? So three things to understand about the secular idea of tolerance. First one is this. It's impossible to live out. It's impossible to be a consistently tolerant person in the secular sense of that word. Why? Because ideas cannot be equal. Think about that. That's, that's the, the, the standard premise is your ideas and my ideas are all equally good and valuable, but they cannot be equal. They cannot be equally good, equally useful, or equally valuable. I want you to give, a, give some thought to an example here. A little small, I'm sorry if you can't read that, but I want you to think about these five statements. Five statements. It is right to kill convicted murderers. It is right to kill ethnic minorities. It is right to kill the unborn. It is right to help a person kill himself. It is wrong to ever kill anyone, no matter what. Now, those are opinions or beliefs that people in America have today. Okay? 
can these five ideas all exist peacefully together? Can they all be counted as equally good ideas? Or think about this. Could you possibly defend all five of these ideas at the same time? Notice my claim to uh, no absolute truth here. Uh, Four and five, it's all the same. I meant to put five, sorry. I'm being tolerant, though, of the fact that uh, four and five can mean the same. But think about that. Can you possibly defend all five of these ideas at the same time? And obviously, we'd have to say no, right? Because if you think about it for a moment, these are are complete oxymorons. They are uh, in complete contradiction to each other. And yet again, the world would say, well, you can have your opinion, I can have mine, and it's all fine. They're all equally good. But ideas cannot be equal. Uh, Truth claims cannot be uh, both true if they conflict with each other. This is basic rhetoric, basic uh, rules of debate and rules of logic. If you have two conflicting ideas, they cannot both be true at the same time and in the same way. Uh, Our society says today there is no absolute truth. Right? That's one of the great claims. There is no absolute truth. Well, there's a small problem with that. I want you to think about this. Um, If I say there's no absolute truth, then you should ask me the question, is that true? Right? And if I respond to you by saying, well, no, it's not true, well, then that means that there is absolute truth. Right? Why? Well, because you cannot have absolute truth and no absolute truth at the same time. Uh, the old way they say that in, um, in philosophy and, and all that fun stuff in logic, you cannot have A and not A at the same time in the same way at the same place. Does that make sense? Logical contradiction, okay? It just doesn't work. So can, uh, is there absolute truth? Well, let me say, is that true? Well, yes, it's true. Well, then I've made a claim of absolute truth. How have I made a claim of absolute truth? You see, any statement of fact must have a basis in objective reality. Does that make sense? I.e., objective reality is another word for absolute truth. Uh, I'll put it to you this way. Is this here? Yes. Okay. Does anybody think it's not here? Can it be both here and not here at the same time? No. I mean, this, this, it's like, duh. Why you got to be up in front of the church saying something so obvious? i got to say this because, believe it or not, there are people out there who honestly believe that it can be here and not here at the same time. And it's just, it's illogical, I realize that. But they, then they take that idea there, there's no absolute truth, you know, reality is whatever you perceive it to be, and they try to apply that to ideas across the board. And so you have to realize that is unlivable. It is fundamentally an oxymoron. That is two things that cannot be true at the same time. I'll give you another great thing that you'll hear sometimes. Um, Speaking kind of an extension of this idea. Oh, the slide got messed up. I'm sorry. Uh, if you try to live this way, okay, if you try to live with absolute tolerance in your life, hypocrisy is inevitable. Hypocrisy is inevitable. Why? Well, I know you can't read part of that, but it says, Jill says, abortion is immoral. You shouldn't do that. But Jane says, hey, you can't force your morals on me. So Jill says, why not? And Jane says, because that's immoral. And so Jill responds, hey, you can't force your morals on me. See, every time that they try to say, well, uh, we can all believe whatever we want to believe, 
by, by making an absolute statement, they contradict themselves naturally. And so at some point or other, if we tried to live in the secular idea of tolerance, we would have to be intolerant. You have to not tolerate some ideas in order to tolerate all ideas. The second important thing I want you to understand about tolerance is that it demeans people. The idea of secular tolerance is demeaning to people. Now, you know, we all want equality, don't we? We all want equality. We love the idea that all men are created equal. Oops, men and women, sorry, are created equal. But what is equality? Think about that for a minute. What does equality actually mean? Um, are we all equal in mass? No? Okay. Are we all equal in our, our, our intelligence? No? And not everybody out here is an Albert Einstein? Okay. Uh, are we all equal in our physical abilities? Can I play basketball just as well as you? The answer is no. <laughs> So if we're not really equal in these traits and characteristics, then what does equality mean? Now, in Christianity, equality means that all people are equally bearing the image of God, okay? Which means ultimately we're equal in value. We have intrinsic value, okay? That is, it does not matter what happens to us. We are valuable in the eyes of God because that value comes from a higher authority source, God himself. And so consequently in Christianity we'd say, well, a crippled child is not less valuable than the most accomplished doctor in the world. They are equal in that sense, okay? But there's a problem when you try to apply that in the world. See, in secularism uh, or our general secular society, they don't consider man to be made in the image of God, right? So if you're not made in the image of God then therefore you don't have that intrinsic value. And really that's one of the key reasons why some of the great atrocities of the last hundred and some years have been happening as atheism has taken root in different parts of the world by devaluing human life. That's why 65 million children have been murdered on American soil because we devalued human life by saying it's not made in the image of God. And yet we still say... Despite the fact that we've devalued everything, we say we want equality. Well, so if we're, not, uh, if we're not equal in the physical sense, we're not equal in the intelligence sense, we're not equal in stature or authority or position or any other such thing, then we must be equal. That basically leaves one last area, and that is our thoughts, feelings, and beliefs. That's why there's a push in the secular world to say all thoughts, feelings, beliefs, etc. are equal, because that's the only way you can have equality is if you are not created in the image of God. And so if we say all thoughts, beliefs, feelings, values, etc. are equally valid, then they therefore must be equally true. Now why is that demeaning to people? Because we are ultimately judging people to be equal by a false standard. We create this artificial equality. And we do this in large part by demeaning the accomplishments and the abilities and the ideas of some people and then inflating or elevating the abilities and accomplishments and ideas of another group of people, okay? That's why you have people who've done great and amazing things in this world who are given no recognition for it or their, their ideas are put down 
And then you have people who've done absolutely nothing who get Nobel Peace Prizes. I'm not naming names, okay? I'm not naming names. I'm just saying. It's an attempt to artificially create equality. This has come into our culture. We've all kind of seen this and probably griped about it. The, the um, idea of basically everyone gets a participation ribbon. That idea comes out of this. Equality. We don't want anyone to feel bad. We don't want them to feel like they're less. We don't want kids to feel the sting of losing. We want them to feel equal. You may have heard about... Um, well, I'll, sh- I'll show you the slide here in a second. Uh, this really leaves no room then for accomplishment. It leaves no room for greatness. There are no heroes. A writer lamented not many years ago. There are no heroes left anymore. Why? Because we refuse to acknowledge that somebody did something great. California high school basketball had a basketball team that I would call heroes. Why? Because they smoked every team in excess of 70 points. 70 point winning margin every game. Coach was suspended for winning too much. We can't celebrate greatness. We can't say, wow, what did they do? Let's look at that. Let's see what they did. You go, nah, we got to bring them down. Because my kid felt bad when he lost. Or when she lost, actually. This was a girls basketball team, I believe. There's no room for greatness. So really this idea of tolerance demeans people. And the last thing I want you to understand is that this idea of tolerance is a tool used intentionally to marginalize Christianity in our culture today. Okay? Now, I understand something, and, and this is, may not sound very nice, but it really is the truth. Christianity, to use a great expression, is the cauldron in which the greatest ideas were formed. Okay, representative government, capitalism, equal protection, religious tolerance, as I mentioned before. These are the greatest ideas in the history of mankind. And that's not even mentioning things like scientific advancement. Name the greatest scientists of the last 400 years. Almost all of them were professing Bible-believing Christians. The impact of Christianity cannot be overstated in our world. You know, one of the problems, of course, is some of these ideas, like you know, democracy and capitalism and all those things, they, they lead to a problem. You have winners and losers. Again, these ideas, they, they flow over each other, okay? Winners and losers. Sorry, guys, sometimes that's the way reality works. And Christianity has acknowledged that fact because it doesn't base equality on ideas and feelings. It bases it on being created in the image of God. So we can deal with the fact good Christian people can lose a basketball game and get up the next morning and still feel like God loves them or know at least that God loves them. We don't have to force ourselves to feel good and feel equal. Christianity then has given so much to the culture. And and this maybe sounds mean, but I want you to think about this just for a minute, okay? Uh, Technological development in the world, where was it? It was in the Christian West. 
Yes, it is true, Islam had a lot of scientific in, uh, innovation in what we used to call the, the dark ages, which actually weren't that dark. But look at technological innovations. I'll give you just kind of briefly uh, one of the things that blows my mind. Think of the, uh, the cathedrals in Europe. Think of those cathedrals. They were building buildings higher and higher and higher. And, and what t in order to do that, to keep these cathedrals from collapsing, they had to be inventing new ways to build. Look in the ancient worlds. Look at things like you know, the pyramids and the other ancient palaces in the east. And they have these huge bases, okay? They're almost always some form of pyramid, if you will, because they have these huge, heavy, massive, multi-ton blocks at the bottom so that as they get bigger, they can use smaller and smaller, lighter material to a point, right? It was the Christians building cathedrals who came up with the ideas that enabled them to build a straight wall going up 150 feet without it collapsing. Now, what does that have to do with anything? It's the fact that the reason they wanted to do that was because they said, you know what? When people come to church, their eyes should be fixed towards heaven. Their hearts and minds should be elevated towards God, towards up. Hey, you know, maybe we don't think that's the best idea in the world. I don't know. We don't really seem to have a big passion for building big buildings in Christianity anymore. But the root idea... People would give their entire life to say, you know what, I want to build something for the honor and glory of God. And for the betterment of humanity as well. And so they would build, they would work, they would learn, they would study. The world owes a great deal to Christianity. If you look at the rest of the world, we were driving cars and farming with tractors when the rest of the world was still farming with water buffaloes. Again, I'm not trying to be mean. It's just the honest fact. All right, I've pontificated enough on that. I'm sorry. Despite that fact, Christianity has one great flaw. And if we didn't have this one great flaw, we'd probably be a whole lot more popular in the world. One great flaw. What is it? It's the fact that we claim exclusivity. That is to say that we claim that there's only one way to eternal life, one way to a relationship with God, one way. That's what Jesus said in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And doggone it, that's just not very tolerant now, is it? Tolerance has become then this concerted campaign to demonize Christianity is mean and hateful. And I, I would really say that, I, I honestly believe that. I mean, some people would go, no, 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 tolerance has nothing to do with Christianity. Don't go blaming yourself for it. No, guys, it really is. And if you look at what religion is being attacked with the tag of intolerance, it's Christianity. Oh, you got a few people out there that goes, well, the Muslims are intolerant, but not very many. By and large, it is the Christians, it is Bible-believing, evangelical Christianity that is being labeled as intolerant. So please understand these things. When we talk about this concept, okay, tolerance is impossible. It leads to hypocrisy. It has to. It just doesn't work. It is demeaning. And that explains a lot of the, the crazy, ludicrous things that we see happening around us in our culture from the killing of unborn children to the firing of good coaches. And it really is a tool intended to target Christianity. So this is the world we live in, guys. 
Welcome to it. It's been really an amazing journey since I was a kid, seeing the cultural shift in our country, and there's no doubt the shift is speeding up. It's taking place faster and faster. Um, and there's a lot of reasons behind that, which I just don't have time to get into. Um, I, I, told, I told Pastor Roy I'd be done at least by three, so we have to cut some stuff out. And um, I'd just love to talk all about it. I really would. The church has been kind of slow to adapt in general. Uh, and unfortunately, so much of the adapting that Christians have done is by saying, well, okay, if you think that idea is intolerant, we just won't talk about it. And that's the wrong approach. So what is the right approach? Again, we could just talk all day about this, and I don't have all the answers. But I want to look at the example that Paul gives us in the book of Acts. And if you've got your Bible, I'd ask you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 17. Now, I did not put this text on the overhead. And I, my thought was, I want you to open your own Bible. (laughs) Okay, but I know not everybody necessarily brought one for various reasons. And so I'm sorry, I should have put it up there, but I didn't. Consequently, I'm going to read it to you. Um, I'm not the best reader in the world. And, of course, I picked the Bible with the really small print. So I'm going to be down here. And I'm going to read this text to you. Uh, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 32. Acts 17, 16 through 32. And I want you to notice that Paul is in a pagan culture, okay? A culture that is not tolerant very much of this Christian idea. Again, because here in Greece, in Athens, um, while they worshipped many gods, there was still the concept that uh, loyalty to the state meant you worship the gods that everybody else worships. And if you're advocating foreign gods, you're probably a troublemaker, okay? So Paul is in Athens, and it says in verse 16 of Acts 17, While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Then some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, Ha, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching of Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. So we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing but telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed something, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hopes that they might feel their way towards him and find him. 
yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and, ima- and, and imagination of man. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Now, excuse me. I think this example that Paul gives is relevant to us today in our day-to-day life, our day-to-day work. And some will make the argument, well, no, Paul was a professional missionary. I'm not a professional missionary. This was his calling. There's a lot of truth to that, okay? But we really are called to be missionaries, ambassadors of Christ everywhere we go, whether that's work or play or whether it's professional mission work, okay? So I want you to notice a few things about Paul. Uh, And actually, if you notice, his intention was not to come to Athens and preach, okay? He was actually waiting for uh, Timothy and Silas. So he wasn't there with that direct thought, I'm here to preach. He was waiting, okay? But while he's waiting, it says, his spirit was provoked within him because he saw the city was full of idols. I want you to realize something. Paul was a passionate man, a passionate man. We need to be passionate people today. What was he passionate about? Well, two things, I believe. It says his spirit was provoked because of the idols. Why would that be? Two reasons. Paul loved God. Paul loved God with all of his heart. He had given everything. And it provokes a person who loves God to see people worshiping something other than God. Why? Because if you love God, you want him to receive the worship. It's natural. If you really love God, you're going to have some kind of a passion to see him glorified. And Paul sensed that. He felt that. That's why he was provoked at the idolatry. And the other side is this. Paul loved lost people. Paul loved lost people. He loved pagans. He loved weird, tattooed people like me. Paul loved people who were sexually immoral. Paul loved these Greeks who many would say, and many have argued, were, while they were very intellectual, many of them were just lazy bums. It even kind of implies that. It says they would do nothing but spend their time uh, hearing new things. Many people have said, man, they were a lazy bunch of people. Paul loved them. That's why he was provoked, because he knew that the worship of idols was going to lead these people to hell. And so even though his mission was to wait for Timothy and Silas, he could not keep silent. So he began preaching. And yes, he went to the Jews. Okay? So you might say he went, to the, he went to the church. It started with the people who already had this monotheistic God. But he also says he went to the marketplace. He went to there and preached to whoever happened to be there. Paul was a passionate man. Loved God and loved people. And he was engaged. He went where the people were. And this is what I want you to realize. Uh, I love the idea of like street evangelism. And I love it so much, I don't think I've ever done it. 
um, which is a terrible thing, I know. I love what Ray Comfort does. If you're familiar with Way of the Master, uh, you know, he goes out on the beaches in California and just, just hits up people, okay? Maybe God calls you that, maybe not. I'm not here to argue that, but I'm really not even talking about that type of evangelism. You are in the world. I, I think you are anyway. You're here. Has anybody been to a store in the last month? Nobody here has been to three people. Okay. So at least three people in here are in the world. Paul went where the people were. If you have a job in this world, you're somewhere where there are people. Now I realize if you work at Jealous, you're off with your little headsets in a corner working on loud machines all by yourself. But you still have break times. Okay? You're there. Why are you there? Is it maybe so that you can engage people? Yes, I realize, okay, I, I mean, I, I was a pastor for a little bit, and then I'm teaching a Christian school, okay? One of the things that I've enjoyed doing the last three summers is going and getting a real job, okay? One that puts me around non-believers. I understand you cannot walk into a new job day one and just start talking Jesus, 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 Jesus to everyone around you. I get that. I'm not saying go and be some weird nut. I'm saying engage people where they are. Engage them where God has put you. That's a biblical concept. Paul himself wrote about that in 1 Corinthians. Wherever God puts you, whatever job he's given to you, do it, do it well, and use that as the opportunities that God gives you to engage the world. Paul was passionate. He was engaged. He was also very thoughtful. I could put kind of thoughtful slash knowledgeable. I want you to kind of look at what Paul does here. See, Paul was a keen observer of the culture around him, right? And so he, he didn't just jump in there and start going, well, guys, you know, you're all a bunch of sinners and idolaters, and you need to believe in this one God that I'm preaching, okay? Now, would that be wrong? No. I mean, those are accurate facts. They were a bunch of sinners and idolaters who needed to believe in his God. But that wasn't his methodology. And honestly, if, if, if you walk into the job day one, you know, hi, I'm here, Dan, the new guy at the dump, and uh, let me tell you about Jesus, and you all need to turn and repent. It doesn't really work that well, okay? Paul was knowledgeable, and he saw something that really he saw as, as a way in. He'd studied and done his homework, and he said, ah, they've got this altar to an unknown God. That's my way in. I can impart something to them, impart to them some knowledge. But more than just that, I want to give you a really cool key, I think, to good evangelism. And that is, uh, when I say he's thoughtful, he caused people to think. He didn't just give facts. He engaged them in a way to cause people to think. Okay? Because while he didn't maybe ask a question per se here, he brought up the question by inference, which is, who is this unknown God? He used the key there, the question that was already open to the public. Who is the unknown God? And he said, now, because you have this mystery, let me help you out with it. It was knowledgeable, and it was thoughtful. And I am sure, obviously, people thought about it. Because some of them actually believed that day, and others didn't believe, but they still said, hmm. Makes you kind of think. All right. I'll let you come again tomorrow, and we can hear some more of what you have to say. You know, evangelism isn't a one-time event. 
It can be in you know, street evangelism or something, but day-to-day evangelism is not a one-time event. So being knowledgeable, being thoughtful, asking people questions is such a great key. And I've probably said this before, but questions, they just open up so much. And that's one of the things, again, why I love Ray Comfort's Way of the Master system of evangelism, because you ask people questions. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, come Wednesday, you'll see the movie, you'll see it, you know, used a bit. In the little clip there you saw, he was asking these people questions, making them think. Paul was thoughtful. Let me throw in another little tip for you, if you will. If you engage people this way, they're going to ask you questions you don't know the answer to. That's okay. Okay? Part of being a good ambassador of Christ is saying to somebody, you know, I have no idea, but that's a great question you got right there. I'll try to find an answer and come back to you. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to know everything. And if you try to bluff your way and act like you know it, you've probably done more damage than good. So be thoughtful and be honest and say, hey, I don't know, but I'll get back to you on that one. It is a challenge for us then, though, to be prepared to make a defense in as much as we can. Next thing is Paul was relevant. Paul was relevant. You'll notice that he did not use extensive scripture quotations. Okay? As a matter of fact, in the text there, if you've got, um, if you've got a Bible that has it kind of marked off or blocked off that way, or in quotations, verse 28, those are two quotations. In him we live and move and have our being. He's not quoting the Old Testament there. He's quoting uh, Epimenides, an ancient Greek philosopher, or actually a, a Cretan, a man from Crete. Not a Cretan in the bad way. A man from Crete. He's quoting his poetry. And then the next line he says, For we are indeed his offspring. Uh, he's quoting, quoting uh, Eretus, I believe is how you say it. A Greek philosopher. These were the uh, cultural elites of the day. These were the, the hip-hop artists of their day. Okay? Since the people loved culture so much, or they loved philosophy and ideas so much, the, the hip-hop artists of their day were the philosophers and the writers. And so, uh, Paul, you know, the, these guys are, are not Christians. Eridus and Epimenides are not Christians. But just because they're not Christians doesn't mean that they're absolutely wrong on everything. They both made two true statements. And so Paul latches on to those statements to say, see, even your writers have some concept of truth over here. So let's use that as our launching point. He kept it, excuse me, <clears throat> he kept it relevant to the people using things in their culture to explain it. That, of course, in addition to the fact that he used their gods, their altar to the unknown God, to explain something they desperately needed. When's the last time somebody quoted to you from Snoop Dogg when they were trying to talk to you about the Bible? Not very often. I don't do it. I don't particularly like doing it. The music of our culture today, no offense, young people, I think most of it kind of stinks. Not quality-wise, by the way. And they got some great beats. I mean, I'm, I love it, you know. Uh, that song, One Love, the message is terrible. The song is very catchy. Terrible message. But you know, even in those things, don't be afraid to listen to it. I'm talking to the adults here. You kids, turn that junk off. If you're mature in your faith, don't be afraid to listen to it once in a while. To understand something of our culture with our young people and 
Listen for what lines are true. Listen for a way that you can engage people. You know, I've, I've done this a couple times. When there's, you know, I worked two summers ago at Domino's, or a couple summers, and I worked this year at the dump, the city dump, and just terrible music on the radios. But a couple of times, it opened up a door. It just, it just God opened up something, and this song comes on, it says something, and, you know, somebody comments about, oh, yeah, I like that one. And I go, wow, that's a really interesting view they're proposing there. What does he mean by that? Opens up conversations. Last thing about Paul, he was gospel-oriented, okay? I've got a great little acronym there for you, PETERG, because that's a great word, PETERG. If you can just remember that word, you can remember these ideas of Paul and his traits. Paul was gospel-oriented. You notice in verses 30 and 31, he presents basically the, the, the foundational details of the gospel. Now, he obviously said more than just this, especially since some of the men actually joined him and they believed. Um, so he said more than what we have here, but even in this short uh, segment of his dialogue, he's offered the basic facts of the gospel. God demands repentance, which means that you're a sinner, you've done something wrong. Uh, he is going to judge the world, but he's going to judge it through one man whom, uh, who died and rose from the dead. Okay? So he's laid the foundation for the gospel message. That doesn't necessarily mean that he presented the entire gospel. I mean, like I said, he kind of did here. But you're not always going to have the opportunity every time to do that. But you can lay seeds. You can use the opportunities of these conversations to direct people and lay out the facts of the gospel a little bit at a time. Uh, you know, this summer, like I said, I, I worked at the dump. And uh, I don't want to talk too much about people's lives there and stuff. Uh, but there was one person that I just really felt I, I wanted to share the gospel with because this person was religious but really not a Christian and that was kind of obvious it took almost three months I began working there at the end of May my last regular day was Friday and uh, it wasn't until about the last week maybe two, I guess two weeks ago or so I don't know I'm terrible with time whatever it was that I really had the opportunity golden opportunity and I had been praying for it and praying for it and praying for it. And we'd had little conversations here and there. I'd had the opportunity to lay some seeds. You know, my other coworker was also a Christian. And she's been laying seeds there for years. And this question came up about mediums and spirits. And the cool part about this is, we know, I work in the skill house there, you know. You guys who go out to the dump a lot, you've seen me plenty. And, and I see your employees once in a while. And, um, for an hour and a half... Nobody came to the dump. That never happens. For an hour and a half, not a single car came onto the scale. Not a single customer for me to take care of. I'd been praying for it. And then she started the conversation with a question about mediums and spirits. And so after talking about that stuff, I kind of just said, I said, hey, wait a minute. You know what? I think, I think you and I aren't really going to understand each other's view here. Um, you know, we're coming from this from opposite angles. Can I, can I give you some information that's a little bit more foundational to this issue? He goes, okay, yeah. And then I went, Ray Comfort style. Ray Comfort style. And I, and I was able to share the gospel in very plain terms, very simple terms, uh, in using those question techniques that Ray Comfort uses to get people to realize, to acknowledge for themselves that they are a sinner, that they have broken God's law, and that they deserve his wrath. Now, I'm not saying that to brag about what I've done. 
I'm just saying that these opportunities come. They don't necessarily all come at once. Sometimes you've got to pray for them. You've got to be a little bit prepared, but you've got to be looking. That's, that's, that comes back to the passion issue. It's great to be passionate about your job, but I really hope the church will be passionate about being missionaries in their job, about realizing it's not about the paycheck. It's about people. It's about engaging people. Now, what does this have to do with tolerance? Well, remember Peter's admonition. Um, I put that up on the board earlier, but if you know that text, you know I cut off some of it, didn't I? I cut off the last part of it. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Okay? The great call to apologetics. Defending your faith, being prepared to answer questions, to engage people. Okay? But do so with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The goal is not to put people to shame. Okay? <laughs> Don't read just the last few lines and go, oh, okay, so I get to win the debate. Put the smack down. No. The goal is that with gentleness and respect, we can tell people about the hope that lies within us. And guys, I really think that so many times when there are people slandering Christianity and talking about how intolerant they are, we can see this as an opportunity to engage them, not in a debate for the sake of winning, although that is so much fun, I realize that. One of my big challenges in life has been to not be a debater. God's had to work in me to not just put the smack down and go, ah, but to learn the concept of gentleness and respect. Should we be tolerating intolerant people? Well, according to Peter, we should. And according to Paul's example, we should. Because Paul showed us the way. He did not demean the people of the Areopagus. He didn't go up there and say, you lazy knuckleheads worshiping your idols, you dirty people, God's going to come and burn you all in hell. He came and engaged them. Even though it is quite possible, now we don't know this, it's kind of vague there in the text, but it is quite possible that they were hostile with him. When it says some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers, uh, they came to him saying, what does this babbler have to say? He's a preacher of foreign divinities. And it says they took him to the Areopagus. I don't think they arrested him. But it may not have been the friendly, oh, hey, let's have a chat. It's quite possible that these people were like, okay, you, you, you weirdo from out of town. Let's find out what you're about here. And there are people today who will do that. And Paul saw an opportunity. And Peter says, do it with gentleness and respect. Should we tolerate them? Yes. But we should tolerate intolerant people in the way that Christian tolerance really is. Again, I kind of said it before, but I, the idea of Christian tolerance. I don't agree with you, but I'm not going to persecute you for believing the way you believe. Instead, I'm going to try to convince you with reason and scripture that you should believe as I do. That's Christian tolerance. And it stems fundamentally out of love. There's one thing I can leave with you love the lost people enough 
love the lost people enough to engage with them. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.